0: Certainly it is a blessing, isn't it, to come together this evening to appreciate a place of comfort as we have been given, certainly by the blessing of God, and we can assemble in the peacefulness and tranquility of the moment. There are many places in the world for which, of course, that wouldn't be possible due to governmental threats, or at least those particularly unhappy with what what takes place in a service like this one. As you may have already noticed on the wall behind me, we'll have a question and answer session tonight where it'll be the questions that's been submitted. And certainly if if you have questions or thoughts, you can always put them in that box out there in the foyer. And these, of course, are the questions you have asked. And so you have, in essence, selected the topics for, for the message tonight. As we give some consideration to these, as always, very good questions and certainly those that can challenge us in so many ways, in some instances very profound to, to be sure. As always, we'll step through them, and we'll begin with an introductory slide, really, that basically looks like this one. It is our conviction that the Word of God has the answers, and that's the reason for a service like this one, that it does have the information within it to help us as we deal with the issues that we face in life, It is this book that tells us the attitudes, the circumstances, the approaches. And so as we open the Word of God tonight, we'll try to use it to answer these questions that have been asked. The first question reads like this. It's a bit of a lengthier question, but certainly a very profound one. When considering the weather, one can agree that it is a remarkable thing. Does God use storms, tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes as forms of judgment? I have heard people, even Christians, make the statement, God is trying to tell us something, using this statement to say that God uses these events as forms of judgment when a natural disaster occurs. Does God use these events as forms of judgment? Is there any biblical truth to this? The person, and I don't know who wrote any of these, but the person made the statement, the comment, that indeed the weather and its consideration can be a very profound thing to be sure. And so I thought we might give some initial consideration of what the Bible has to say about the weather, who controls it, and the circumstances that surround it. And so on that slide, we might begin like this. Without a doubt, the God that you and I serve and worship as the supreme ruler of the universe, He is in control of all things, and that includes the weather. You might, in fact, give some thought to Jeremiah five twenty-four. when in the days of the Old Testament, through Jeremiah, there it was specifically stated that God gives both the former and the latter rain. Now, for Israel, the rain, of course, was critical, it was needful, and it was there particularly said that God gave both of those that were former in the year and those that were latter in the year. But in addition to that, might I point out James five seventeen. There in that verse and the one that follows it, when Elijah prayed unto God, you may remember that for three and a half years it neither rained nor dewed, And again, that was because God forbade it or precluded it in light of the answer to the prayer of Elijah. Doesn't that indicate God's complete control over that element and weather? perhaps one final one in Mark 4:35. We might recall there Jesus was on a sleep in a boat. A storm arose and those disciples were fearful. They thought they were going to die. They woke Jesus up and He stilled the storm instantly. Doesn't that indicate He has complete power and control and authority over a weather-related event? As you and I add to that, though, the following. So we've at least established that God does have control of these things. But the next point is this. There are a few instances in the Word of God in which, with regard to severe weather, be it storm clouds or be it earthquakes, for example, we are told that God was in control of them. I've selected four of them. In Isaiah 29, 6, there in the Old Testament. Now that chapter begins with a reference to Ariel. As you read a chapter like that one, keep in mind that was just a descriptive way of referring to Jerusalem. This was a statement. In fact, much of that chapter surrounds God's judgment upon Jerusalem. And in fact, verse 6 mentions that God was going to break an earthquake on Ariel, on Jerusalem. Clearly, it was a matter in judgment on that occasion. But let's add to that this one. In Matthew 28, 2, again, an earthquake occurred. This time, it was as the stone was being rolled away, allowing the ladies, the women, entrance into the tomb where Jesus was buried. One more time, isn't it fair to say that the, the nature, the power of this earthquake, it was such that it was under the control of the power of the God of heaven. Two more. In Jonah 1 verse 4, here there was a serious storm that arose on the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah was aboard a ship. He was going away from where God told him to go. And there, of course, God brought the tempest that ultimately led to Jonah being thrown overboard. But isn't it true one more time, here was a storm. It was clearly brought about as a means of the circumstances surrounding Jonah's sinless, uh, sinful, sinful predicament. One final one, in Psalm 83, 15, one more time, there God brings as a matter of judgment in that Old Testament era, these severe storms, these weather-related events. I say all of that to say then there's ample biblical evidence that God can use storms and He can use severe weather as a means of judgment. The question is, does he always do that? Is every single severe storm then a matter of judgment from God? That would be going too far. Because after all, might I ask you to know, we have at least one instance in the Old Testament where Satan was in control of some weather. Do you recall the scene of Job? Job's children were in a house, and it was the devil who brought this severe wind, causing the house to collapse, killing the children. That one was not God's doing. It was under the control of the devil. But now, I quickly would add this. Again, on that occasion, it was the permissiveness of what God allowed Satan to do. It would, be go- it would certainly not be fair to say Satan can control any and all attributes of the weather. And so that leads me to close the slide like this. It appears there were some other events weather-related that were not necessarily judgments from God. They were just severe weather that happened as a result of the natural scientific processes involved in temperature, in wind, and in other things about the weather. In Acts 27, verses 1 and following, Paul and his companions, of course, were traveling to Rome. And you might recall a shipwreck happened, but it was because of a storm. A terrible tempest that lasted over two weeks. They had seen neither sun nor moon in two weeks. That's how bad the storm was. Clearly, as you give thought to it, it a reminder of how serious storms can be. You and I know well about tornadoes and hurricanes and other things. It would seemingly be fair to say this. There are occasions when bad things, including weather, happen to good people. May I say that again? There are times when even those that are faithful suffer under terrible things and they might be related to the weather. So it wouldn't be fair to say that every storm or bad weather event is some kind of a judgment from God because these people are faithful. Job was And yet, look what he suffered. Therefore, could we say this? Could God use weather as an element in judgment? Sure, he could. Are you and I sure that every such occurrence is one of his judgments? And the answer, there's no. Therefore, you and I should be cautious. The person who asked this question said that sometimes even a Christian might say, God is trying to tell us something. That would seem to be a stretch to me biblically. I would urge us to have more caution than that. When a serious drought or perhaps some other weather-related event occurs, that's not necessarily God trying to tell us something. It could merely be that that is the particular scientific developments of this particular time and place. Hopefully we've given at least some help on that question. Let's turn to the next one. This question reads like this. Some congregations of the Church of Christ have individual Lord's Supper containers that are taken to those who are sick or shut in. Due to their health reasons, these individuals who are Christians are not capable of coming to the services, and certainly God understands their circumstances in that regard. However, would this practice be wrong considering that the person is not participating in all aspects of worship? Isn't that a great question? Maybe many of us have given some reflection and thought on that. You're aware some congregations, in fact, have Lord's Supper prepared in such a way and they take it to those who are shut in or those who perhaps are in hospitals or other places and they serve them the Lord's Supper on a Sunday afternoon, usually. We here at Pippin choose not to do that. And maybe that's prompted something about, again, this question. Let me invite you to make some consideration of these things. May I suggest that there's no question that those individuals who do participate in this, their intention is quite noble. Their compassion is to be certainly understood and appreciated. I would ask this very differently. Is there scriptural authority for this? Is there any example anywhere in the Bible of a congregation in the first century who took the Lord's Supper to those that were shut in? Or do we find any passage that offers biblical approval for this? Let's begin to study it somewhat carefully. The person who asked the question made note that the Lord's Supper is not the only element of worship. Those congregations that do take the Lord's Supper to a shut in, do they sing while they're there? Do they take take up the contribution while they're there? Do they have a sermon while they're there? Do they offer prayers while they're there? The New Testament identifies five acts of worship. Certainly we'd agree the Lord's Supper, though important it is, it isn't the only one. May I invite you to consider these. The person who wrote the question, again, made a very good observation. There are some individuals who cannot come to the services due to health reasons, for example. Let's be turning to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We have in this chapter Paul's inspired presentation on a subject like this one to the church at Corinth. Beginning in verse number 17 and lasting all the way through the end of the chapter. Now we'll not read all of those 18 verses, but could I point out some of them? First of all, verse number 18 For first of all, when ye come together, did you note the emphasis? Individuals were able to come together, and as such, they not only participated in worship, but of course, that included the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, verse 20, when ye come together, again, same idea. Verse number 33, therefore, or rather, wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, carry one for another. Well, there's three usages of the phrase, come together. Clearly, if one cannot come together, then God does not expect them to take of the Lord's Supper. They can't come together. And yet, the Lord's Supper is taken by those who have come together. So the person was exactly right. God understands if an individual due to illness is not able to attend the services, and God doesn't demand that person to partake of the Lord's Supper. But furthermore, you might note this. Could I then make this statement? There is no biblical authority, there's not a single example anywhere in the New Testament of the first century church taking the Lord's Supper to individuals who were shut in for them to take it. I would offer there's no biblical authority for this. I'm rather pleased we hear we have, in fact, no ill will to those that are shut in. We hope they'll improve. We certainly pray that they shall. But God doesn't expect them to partake of the Lord's Supper because they cannot come together. I would say there could well be a danger in doing this. If a congregation were to take the Lord's Supper to these houses and not do all the other acts of worship, are you not given the impression this one is more important than all the others? And that the others are somewhat then optional. If one isn't careful, that's at least the impression you're giving when certainly that would be unscriptural. For those reasons, I would urge no congregation should be doing this. There's no biblical authority for it. Question number three. This question is much briefer. It reads like this. Suppose an elder's wife dies. Can he continue to serve as an elder? Is that a good question? It may well be that we have often given some consideration to questions similar to that one, perhaps that identical one. If an elder's wife were to pass away would he be able to continue to serve as an elder? Well, you'll notice on the slide, first of all, the individual who wrote this question clearly had in mind a list of qualifications found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you would, please be turning to that chapter with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. One more time, that list is somewhat lengthy and, of course, this question only involves one of them. But let me, in fact, read the first two verses. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, we discussed that in the lesson this morning, he desireth the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You'll then notice that early on in this list of qualifications, it's mentioned about the husband of one wife. Clearly then, an elder has to be a married man. At the time a gentleman is appointed as an elder, he would have to be married. Now this question perhaps goes like this. Suppose a man has served as an elder for quite some time. His wife now passes away. He has long since been an elder and maybe done a fantastic job at it. But now, due certainly to no fault of his own, his wife passes away. Can he continue to serve as an elder? As we begin that study, could I call your attention to the Greek verbs that are occurring in this, in this listing of qualifications? If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And then it goes on to list, a bishop then must be, and there's that verb must be. As you reflect on the original language, these three things might be noted. The verbs all through the list are present tense. They are active in voice. They are indicative in mood. Now, not to make too much of that, but it is interesting to observe this. What that is saying is these are ongoing required qualifications. It's not that a man must meet them at the time he's appointed and then they become optional thereafter. To perhaps use an example of that, look down the list. So for instance, it says that an elder must be, for example, apt to teach. So certainly that would need to be true of the man at the time he is appointed as an elder. But given the verb tenses, it would have to remain true throughout the nature of his time of service in the office of an elder. And so, for example, if he reaches a time when maybe dementia or some early stages of it is set in and he's no longer capable of teaching, he's, he's no longer qualified to serve as an elder. Or consider in Titus's list, it says an elder must be of good behavior. Surely a man would be of wonderfully good behavior at the time he's appointed. What if the time comes he is no longer known to be of good behavior? What if his conduct has become questionable? Can he still serve? By virtue of the verb tenses and the features of it, the answer is no. These qualifications must be met not only at the time of the appointment, but throughout the person's office of elder. It's easy to make that application to the husband of one wife. May we suggest that once his wife dies, he is no longer the husband of one wife. He isn't. According to Romans 7, verses 2 and 3, that marriage has been severed at the time of her death. He is no longer the husband of one wife, and he is no longer qualified to serve as an elder. He would need to step down. He would need to resign. Now, I would be quick to say this. May I say there is great wisdom in this. There are many things that his wife would have a vital part to play in his service as an elder there are no doubt many times when a female of the congregation may have a concern men don't always easily understand the perspective and the approach that a woman may have she would be able to give to her husband a tremendous insight into perhaps the way that this woman's concern is being expressed that could be exceedingly important not only that, she would offer a balanced approach to his way of thinking. May I offer one final thought? In verse number 2, it says that an elder must be given to hospitality. I don't think it's a stretch for any of us to appreciate the fact that a woman has typically much better skill in that than a man does. If you're going to invite people into your home, a woman is much better at making the preparations and all the necessary things for that to be a peaceful and enjoyable visit. Notice that's required of an elder. If his wife has died, he's lost this. I'd suggest he needs to resign if his wife passes away. And that's no reflection upon his past service in the eldership. It's just the fact he no longer meets the qualification. Now quite frankly, this question touches the next one as well. It also asks this question. This is number four. Suppose an elder's wife dies and he later remarries in the Lord. Can he serve as an elder again? Isn't that another good question? So here the scene is. A gentleman, a man who serves as an elder, his wife dies. Maybe he has stepped down as an elder. Hopefully he has. But in time he meets a Another woman, and he marries her, and he marries in the Lord. That is required according to 1 Corinthians 7 39. But now that he is again married, can he again serve as an elder? Could that congregation, in essence, appoint him again to serve? That's a great question. I suppose that those who have asked that question now wonder if he has remarried, is he still the husband of one wife? Hasn't he had two wives? This is a critical point, and it would do us well to to observe the language very, very carefully. In Romans 7, so let me invite you to turn there with me. This is the inspired explanation of what answers our question. In Romans 7, beginning in verse number 1, "'Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law.'" How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. Did you hear that with me? so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. While that elder was married to that wife, he was the husband of one wife. When she died, he was not the husband of one wife then. According to that passage, that law had been severed. The very language of verse number 3 is, She is free from that law. He is free from that law of that marriage. She has has passed away. Now, if he remarries in the Lord, he's still the husband of one wife. Remember, he has been freed from that first marriage consideration. That's what that text in Romans 7 teaches us. Therefore, if he were to marry again in the Lord, he certainly could again, if all the other qualifications are met, he could serve again as an elder. I would ask, though, that perhaps one element in caution here would be in order. And it's what I've placed at the bottom of that slide. You and I have learned already, as we studied the text of our lesson this morning, that the eldership brings great responsibility. It brings great respect on the part of those who are the sheep in in that flock. That leads me to say this. A man cannot effectively serve as an elder if the flock won't follow. Although scripturally that man would be able to serve again as an elder, if this is bringing a sufficient question into the mind of a fairly large number of people and they then are not willing to submit to his leadership, he should not be appointed as an elder. Again, it's a very careful thing to appreciate the degree of that respect and the responsibility that goes with it. According to the Word of God, he would be able, again, to serve as an elder. But if they won't follow, if they're unwilling to accept his leadership, then in the wisdom of the moment, he ought not accept the appointment to the eldership. Now, having at least looked at them, question number five for the night. This one is certainly an intriguing one. Very short, it reads like this. Is it possible to sin in one's dreams? Is it possible to sin in your dreams? Isn't that an interesting question? Let me begin that one in the following way. The Bible frequently does refer to dreams. Over 123 times, you'll appreciate that, at least in the King James translation, the word dream or some form of it occurs. That clearly means there are many references to the concept of dreaming. But that quickly leads me to note this. Especially in the Old Testament, but also occasionally in the New, God used dreams to communicate information. I've listed a few examples. In Genesis 20, verse number 3, Abimelech had a dream. You might remember that Abraham had told a bit of a lie. She's my sister. Speaking of Sarah, when in fact she was his wife, Abimelech, thinking that she was eligible to be taken, took her to him, and it was in a dream that God told Abimelech, You got another man's wife. Now you'll notice that God communicated in a dream then to Abimelech about this situation. Another example in Genesis 28 12, here it was in the dream that God communicated to Jacob. Something about the greatness of how he was to be blessed. Let's add another one. In 1 Samuel 28, 6, there it was the witch at Endor and other things concerning information that was stated. Saul particularly said, God isn't communicating by dreams. He had withheld information in dreams to Saul because of Saul's sins. One final one. Matthew 27, 19, Pilate's wife was such that, remember, she told her husband, don't you have anything to do with this man, for I've suffered much in a dream because of him. May I again just simply say, dreams then had often been used by God to communicate information or at least to share information. But let's bring the instances to our life and time today. There are occasions, and you and I know it well, when at night we may dream, and the dreams that we have are in perfect harmony with events in our life. Maybe you and your wife, in your dream, you're going somewhere you normally go, you're doing something you ordinarily would do, and there's nothing too far-fetched about the dream, but there are other occasions when in the dreams, there can be very unusual things. Things that you would never do in real life. Things that, in fact, you would never even attempt. Have you ever had a dream where you're driving perhaps a car or a bus and you're trying to go straight up a cliff in it? Or maybe you're dreaming about jumping out of a plane? None of us in our right mind would ever do that. The point is, isn't it interesting to observe We now come to the point of asking, so suppose you have a dream in which you're doing something that is not consistent with the Bible. Maybe you're appearing before a crowd improperly dressed. We know immodesty is a sin. What if in your dream you are delivering some kind of message or teaching a class, but you're more or less naked? Have you committed a sin in that dream? This is a great question. Let's turn to 1 John 3, verse 4. We have in this particular place a definition, a biblical definition of what sin is. Let's see if a dream then would be consistent with that definition. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law you'll notice in that passage, several words were very carefully used by the inspired writer. First, commiteth. Sin is not something that is otherwise imagined. It is something committed. And it's something you've made a choice, by and large, in which, in fact, to do. In that light, may I invite you to notice that the Greek word that's used there is present in tense and active in voice. (laughs) Excuse me. That means it is something that was pursued in a very careful and determined way. Revisit then the concept of a dream. You and I know, and even those who are the supposed experts in dreams, even they don't understand all about how the mind is working and exactly what it's doing in the course of dreams. But we are seemingly under the impression that dreams are important. They're vital to the well-being and the functioning of the way in which the brain does work. But may I say this. If in a dream something is thus done by you or I, a Christian, and it is not something we would ordinarily select, it's not something we in our right mind would pursue or choose, then what's taking place in that dream is the subconscious, It is not a part of our conscious choice and decisions. It is not something we would have chosen, and therefore it would not be sinful. Now keeping that in mind, though, the last thought is this. If a person who does live a life of sin, who is engaged in habitual, ongoing activities that are not consistent with the Bible, if you're dreaming about those things, they ought to be taken as merely a reminder of the sinful character just one other consideration that things need to change. But the brief answer would seem then to be from the Bible, that dreams by themselves, for a person who is a child of God, those activities not being consistent with one's choice and willful volition would not be sinful, though they be inconsistent with the Bible. Now I would be quick to add this. When we wake up... We might not always remember all the details, but if you are quick to remember some of the basics of it, you shouldn't dwell on it. Because Philippians 4.8 says, We need to think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of a good report. So you certainly should make a strong, concerted effort not to dwell on what took place in that dream. That was question five. How about question six? this question pretty brief, and may I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, for that will be the context for this question. The question reads like this, please explain 1 Peter 1 verse 2, specifically about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, let me begin reading in verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And so the queerest I asked, What is this reference to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ in verse number 2? Well, I have some considerable notes for you and I to at least reflect upon. But to put that in its context, let me encourage you to note that verse 2 is a very special verse, at least in one interesting way. Did you notice? All three members of the Godhead are listed in that one verse. There is God the Father... There is sanctification of the Spirit, and there's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's one of the few verses in the New Testament where all three members of the wonderful Godhead are listed in the same verse. But beyond that, could I invite you to note the following. Verse number 1 reminds us Peter was writing this message to strangers in the area of Asia Minor. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Pontus, Bithynia, on a map, those are all districts in Asia Minor. Inasmuch as that point is asserted, would you observe this with me? Who particularly is identified? It calls them strangers in verse 1. So if we aren't careful, we might tend to think that's people who are not Christians. But be careful. How does verse 2 begin? These individuals to whom Peter wrote, they're strangers in the sense they lived a long way away. But notice verse 2 says they're elect. They're Christians. So again, if you're reading through that, be mindful. Peter isn't writing to those who are not Christians. He's writing to those who are. And in fact, many times in the book, that'll be helpful as you interpret the various expressions and the various statements that are made. But in regard to that word elect, this would be a wonderful time to at least assert this. There is a rather prevalent religious doctrine called predestination that places a great emphasis on the word elect. And it does so perhaps like this. It claims that even before the foundation of the world was ever laid, God predetermined who'd be saved and who'd be lost. So He handpicked this one to be saved, and there's nothing that person can do about it going to be saved. He handpicked that one to be lost, and no matter what that person does, according to this doctrine, that person's going to end up lost. Now may I say that St. Augustine seemingly popularized this, and John Calvin did too. Nothing could be further from the truth than this. God didn't predestine individuals to be saved and to be lost, He predestined classes of people. All of the obedient will be saved. All of the disobedient will be lost. That's how God predestined. And so when He makes mention of the elect, may you and I keep in mind He's about to identify how they're elected and see if it doesn't correspond to what we've just learned. Elect how, Peter? According to the foreknowledge of God. So in the distant recesses of the ancient past, God determined the classes of these are going to be saved. Let's read on. Through sanctification of the Spirit. Now the word sanctification means to be set apart. So these individuals who were elected, by some means through the agency of the Holy Spirit, they were set apart to that position. Let's read on. Unto obedience. There's how it happened. The Spirit revealed what they needed to do. They obeyed it. And as they obeyed it, they thus became a part of the elect. Notice then, it wasn't that God handpicked some to be saved and others to be lost, despite anything they might do. When they obeyed, they became elect. It says, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So on the slide. You may notice then that the separateness that we've read about thus leads to this explanation. It would seem to me that the commentary on this is found in 2 Thessalonians. Hold your finger here then in 1 Peter. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. And let's see there how Paul, under the same discussion, described the same thing. And see if it doesn't explain perhaps what this might mean. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, so there's the foreknowledge of God, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, that's the same phrase that occurred in Peter, and belief of the truth. Now you'll notice the belief of the truth corresponds to that element of sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice it goes on to say in verse 14, where unto He called you by our gospel. How are these individuals called? Is it predestination like Calvin taught? Well of course not. It says they're called by the gospel. So when the gospel is preached, the Spirit is calling. You and I have got to remember that. When the gospel is preached, it's the Holy Spirit calling individuals through that gospel to a life of obedience and to a life of sanctification. One final thing, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So putting that together with Jesus' statement, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16, 16. Therefore, we might close this by noting, this reference to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is a beautiful reference to the application of the blood that was often done in Old Testament days in the way of sacrifices. When we studied Leviticus especially, we noticed that the priest, by command of God of course, was to dip his finger in blood and sprinkle it around the altar. And that signified His acceptance in that covenant, may I suggest, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 24:8. that language was used in concern to, again, sprinkling the blood of the sacrifices around the altar. In Romans 6, verse 3, Colossians 2, as well as Galatians 3, that kind of language reminds us, Jesus shed His blood... And in essence, sprinkles it on us at the time of baptism. We come in contact with it. Romans 6 verse 3. And therefore, when we obey the gospel, the sprinkling of that blood means we're now elect. And if we live faithfully till death, heaven's ours. What great questions have been asked tonight. Encouraging questions. Let's close our lesson then like this. Certainly, we're persuaded that questions and answers are valuable. God often used questions in the Bible as means of teaching great truth. We're always thankful for the questions I ask. As always, feel free to use that box there on the table in the foyer if you have a particular question, and we'll be happy to give consideration to it. But tonight, we've learned about things like the qualifications of elders, and we've even discussed the weather And we've given some consideration to dreams. All of these have been great questions. Certainly we would be fair though to say this. If you're not a faithful Christian tonight, don't you know that at this point you're not elect? You may at one time have been, but you have chosen to forfeit that faithful walking with God. Why don't you come back to your first love? If we could pray on your behalf to God, of course, upon your repentance and confession, we'd be honored to do that. And God has promised to forgive those, those things that stand between you and Him. If this very evening we could be of assistance and help to you in any way, we'd be delighted to invite you to come and urge you to do it. While together we stand and while we sing.